If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and be opening up to 1 John uh, chapter 3. We're going to start there here briefly. We're going to look at the last two verses of chapter 2 before we get there, though. Tonight we continue our series of uh, a study of 1 John. This is our third night, I believe, into it. Uh, third week, I, I should say, into this. And we've been covering some pretty big passages, you could say, some pretty well-known passages. Almost each chapter you've got this milestone moment or this cornerstone moment of a passage that everybody is extremely familiar with. You can look back at chapter 1 and you can see the conversation in Walking in Light, verses 5 through 10. But the one thing I want to point out in each chapter, though, is this language of relationship with God that John is using over and over again. Look at verse 6 and 7, chapter 1. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So chapter 1, we already have this, this, this language, this verbiage being used, so we're having fellowship with God. Now look down to verse chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Or I'm, excuse me, verse 3. By this... We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. And we had a conversation last week of what it really means to know God. We have fellowship Him if we're walking in the light in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now we're having a conversation of what it means to truly know our Savior, know our Creator. And that brings us all the way down to chapter 3. And we've got some, some very familiar passages as we kind of skim through our chapters. If you want to look with me in verses 15... In 17 of chapter 2, the do not love the world statements John makes. But now we get down to the last two verses of chapter 2 that we left off last week that are going to be going into our study tonight. Read with me. 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Now little children, abide in Him so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. We have this idea in verse 28 of confidence versus shame. Confidence or joy versus shrinking away from Christ's second coming. Look back at the middle part of verse 28. So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away. Depending on your fellowship with God, depending whether how you answer that question from chapter 2, whether we know Him, and now, going into chapter 3, this conversation, I think Ben is going to comment on it here in a second, about abiding with Him, truly kind of makes a difference in, of our response than when that second coming happens. When we see the clouds rolled back, when, we see, when you hear the trumpets roar, or whatever it may be, right? When that second comes here, what will your response be? Will it be a confident joy, a peace, of comfort, or at last this day has finally come? Or will it be a, a, a fear of shrinking away, of doubt? I think about when a kid has a parent come home from work, or a kid is playing outside and a parent comes and checks on them. Depending on what they're up to at that moment, or depending on what trouble they've already created by that time, determines how happy they are to see that parent, that mom or dad, walk in the door from work that afternoon or come outside. And depending on what we're doing and depending on how we're living our life may determine that response when Jesus comes back. But it all comes down to verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who also practices righteousness is born of Him. 
Any comments on the last two verses of chapter 2 before we dig into chapter 3? So these two verses here in verses 28 and 29 are going to really frame the next uh, chapter of the book of 1 John. And we have seen all throughout the book of 1 John thus far the blessings and maybe the benefits that we get uh, because we abide in Christ. We talked a little bit last week about these antichrists who do not abide in Christ, these people who do not believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh, and they do, therefore they do not abide in Him. Because they don't abide in Him, they do not have His blood, verse 7 of chapter 1. They do not have the ability to uh, be in fellowship with God, uh, chapter 1 talks about. They do not have the ability, what we're going to talk about in chapter 3, about being called children of God. They do not have the ability to have eternal life, like 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13 says. And so this passage here tells us that we are to abide in Him. And in fact, this, this is the way He closes chapter 2, and it's the same way He closes chapter 3 of our text tonight. And he gives a very short explanation of what it means to abide in Him and what we get if we abide in Him. First of all, if we abide in Him, if we abide in Jesus, then we have confidence. We have a confidence that the world doesn't have. We have a confidence about ourselves, about God, about why we are here, about what is to come that no one else in the world has. Secondly, we have the ability to not be ashamed. To not be ashamed. Because we trust and we abide in Him, we do not have any need to be ashamed. Because we walk in the light as Christ is in the light. It is only when we walk in ourselves and, and act the way we want to act that we have a need to be ashamed. But if we are walking in Him, if, if we are abiding in Christ, then we have no need to be ashamed because Christ is perfect. And then third, the thing that, it, that if we abide in Him, he says in verse 29, basically he's saying if we abide in Christ, then Christ's righteousness applies to us. We get to claim the righteousness of Christ because we have the blood of Christ. And so this language of abiding in Him really goes throughout the entire book of 1 John. Of what the benefits are, what the blessings are of being able to abide in Him. And think about how uh, this language of abiding is. It's a very emotional language. It's a very sentimental language. It's a very... Uh, what's another word? <laughs> it's, 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 it's a word that helps us understand how great it is to be a child of God. You know, you, you invite someone over to your house, you say, this is my humble abode. It's where you spend your time, it's where you eat, it's where you sleep, it's where you make memories with your family, it's, it's, it's where you reside. And where a Christian is to make their memories, is to make their lives, is to build their lives upon, is in Christ, in Him. And if we abide in Him, we have confidence, we have no need to be ashamed, and we get to claim the righteousness of Christ. So that kind of forms our, our conversation for tonight in chapter 3. 
Mm-hmm. We're going to see some more abide language as we go throughout, especially the second half of chapter 3. We'll start commenting on as well. Kyle, any comments before we jump in? Honestly, no. I feel like that's a good summation by both of you, so I think it's best to move on. All right, 1 John chapter 3. Let's read together verses 1 through 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Look back with me in the very beginning of verse 1. It might be the New King James. Instead of see, does it say behold? Mm -hmm. Okay, behold how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. I love how that's put right there because it says, you want to know how much God loves you? You want to see the depth of how far God will love reaches with you? Well, here's a qualifying statement that will show just how much God loves you. That we would be called children of of God. The first question we're going to try to aim or that we're going to aim to answer tonight is what is the significance of being called the children of God? So I'll open it up to you guys before I answer that. Well, it's, it, there's that's there's a lot of different answers we could give here. And, and for me when when I think about the the title uh, child of God, I, I think there comes with it a, a responsibility in that if I'm going to be the child of someone there there's this expectation that I'm going to resemble that one. You, you know, when we t- think about um, uh, children in the context of Scripture, we, almost, we often go to the innocence factor or the trust factor, and I think we overlook the, the resemblance factor. And I think that's the emphasis here in the first three verses of First John chapter 3, because look again at the, the language here, um, that we'll be called children of God, but look down at verse Uh, the end of verse 2. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Throughout Scripture, there are um, several passages that call on us to imitate, to follow, to uh, be imitators of God in some capacity. Uh, Be holy as He is holy, in 1 Peter chapter 1, forgive as Christ forgave you in Colossians chapter 3, accept others as Christ accepted you in Romans chapter 15, be merciful as your Father is merciful in uh, Luke chapter 6, um, Ephesians chapter 5, walk in love of Christ, lo- walk in love as Christ loved you, and then uh, 1 John 1, walk in the light as He is in the light, and then of course, of course here, be pure as he is pure. There's this consistent expectation that as children, we're going to mimic, we're going to resemble our father. And, and so for me, when, when we're running through this and the significance of being a child of God means I look and act like him. And I, and I think when you go through this chapter, you're having these born again language, born of, of him language that appears here. And there's a heavy emphasis on righteousness throughout this chapter. There's this expectation that the way you live is going to be like the Father. And so for me, the significance of being called a child is that, hey, I resemble him. 
And the way I live is going to demonstrate that in some capacity. I think if I can make a quick comment on that, and I think building, building off of that, you know, in my life, I love, you know, as a, as a son, it's always been a compliment to me to hear from my family or from my, my relatives or whatever that you look like your dad. You know, I take that as a compliment, and I take pride in that, that I, as I've grown up, I resembled my dad. And I think in that image, the best compliment we can receive as children of God is for someone to say, you look just like your father. And so if that's Absolutely. what our expectation is, that's the best thing that we can be told as well. That's a, that's a goal. That's a good, really good point. I haven't thought about it that way. Amen. You know, you think about this language of being able to be called children of God. Again, that's a type of language that John uses throughout his writings that some other writers just don't hit the same type of emotional uh, level that John does. Being able to be called children of God. And I thought the same thing uh, as Jay when you think about this word behold. John felt like the blessing of being able to be called a child of God was something to behold. I mean, it's almost like you can see his excitement. John, this older, uh, older Christian in the faith by the time he writes this, this elder in the church, and he's writing to a younger audience definitely as we looked in chapter 2 as he writes to children, as he writes to sons, as he writes to this younger generation, and he says, Behold what manner of love that God has bestowed upon us that we should be able to be called children of God. What was to be beheld? The love that God has for us was what John wants us to behold. The same way at the beginning of this book, he says the thing that, the, the, what we have touched, what we have seen, what we have handled with our hands, he's asking us to touch, to, to understand, to behold, to see this love that we have been able to be given by God, that we should be able to be called children of God. But as, I forget which one was talking about, it was, it was Kyle, he was talking about the expectations that come along with that. It's found to me in verse 3 when he talks about everyone who has this hope, what is this hope? That we are in God, that we abide in Him, that that we are children of God. That's the hope that we have. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as he is pure. So if we're going to be children of God, if we are going to abide in Him, we must be in a constant state of purifying ourselves. We must be in a constant state of getting the cleansing of our sins, chapter 1 talks about. We must be in a constant state of confessing our sins, as chapter 1 talks about. We must be in a constant state of purifying ourselves. You know, we talk about this a lot. Is your faith, is, is, is your faith in God something that is complete or something that you're still working on? Is your faith in God and, and, and your walk with Christ something that you've already hit the finish line and you're just waiting for the clouds to part? And you're just uh, this finished product that 
has no need to change, has no need to listen, has no need to assemble with the saints, has no need to do anything else because you've already made it. You've already reached the status of Christ. You've already reached the fullness of the stature, the measure of Christ, as Paul talks about. Or are you in a constant state of breaking yourself down and building yourself back up in Christ? Of purifying yourself like a, a precious metal. When there are impurities in that metal, you must purify it. You must melt it down and refine it. And Christ is the one who refines us. Christ is the one who purifies us. And that's exactly what John knew, and that's what he's writing about in chapter 3 of this book. Is your faith completed, or are you still purifying it? Are you still cleansing out all of the impurities? Because just as we've been talking about throughout the entire book, and we're going to continue to talk about, in Christ, there is no impurity. There is no darkness at all as John would say. And so, is your faith completed, or are you still trying to cleanse out the impurities? Yeah, I think that's a good point. You, you know, I, I think we could spend the rest of tonight on this one question. What, yeah. what does it mean to be called children of God? I mean, it, to me, the simple answer to that, it means everything. I mean, if you think about it, okay, now that I've gotten the title, I'm a child of God, first and foremost, what does that mean? Well, then that, mean, that makes him what? That makes him my father. I get to call the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the, the all-powerful, the all-knowing. I get to call him of all titles that he could choose to be known by, by all relationships, judge and, and you know, person sentence. He could have been a king and we could have been certain. I mean, of all the titles, more than anything else, why does God choose the title father over and over again? It's because that's what that's the type of relationship he wants with me. He wants me to, to look to him as a, as a son does to his father. So not only does it mean that, though, that we have a father in him, and James chapter 1, verse 17 says that we'll be given every perfect gift which will come from our father, but it also means from Hebrews chapter 2 that, that I get to call Jesus my brother. If Jesus is the son of God, we see through the gospels and then we confess with our faith and if God's my father and I'm a child of his and if Jesus is the son of God in that relationship, then I get to call him my brother. I remember going through high school and I had a, I had a couple older siblings and it was neat to, to have teachers say you remind me of your sister or sometimes it was you're nothing like your sister or something like that. To have an idea that this perfect, the only perfect human being in, in, in history, and I get to call him, that's my brother. I think about John 16, 33. When he says, in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. That's my brother that did that. And he's not ashamed to call me, the writer of Hebrews would say. He's not ashamed. He looks at me and my imperfections and my brother. He's not ashamed to call me a brother. So in that statement, that one statement, a child of God, I get one, to call him my father. Two, I get to call Jesus my brother. But three... A good father is going to give me a home. Think about Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. In this, this three-word statement, I get a father, I get a family, and I get a home. What else 
can I ask for? These are things that no one can take away from me. And these are things, as my phone keeps, I need to put my case back on. These are things that no matter what your family's like, no matter what your parents are like, were like, no matter what your home is like, it doesn't matter because you have a father, you have a family, and you have a home. That's the beauty of this statement. If you've lost a father, you didn't have a good, like your prayer was this morning, the beauty of the statement is we all come from, we all have, we get to claim, we get to cling to a father. Because Why? Because we are the children of God. And I love the statement after that. He calls us children of God, and what? And such we are. We can't do anything about it. He's labeled us that. Those that are abiding in Him, we get that. And what a, just an amazing blessing that is. Let's keep reading. Let's go now from verse 4, to chapter, verse 4 through verse 10. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God and practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Verse 10, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. If we look back at verse 9, we see that no one born of God practices sin. Guys, how do we reconcile this truth? For that's what it is, a truth. How do we reconcile this statement in verse 9, no one who's born of God practices sin with the reality that not one of us is perfect. And not one of us in this room, maybe on our best days, maybe we can go a day without one sin, but we all have sin in our lives. So how can verse 9, how can this truth be the case, but also the reality of sin being still persistent or existing in our lives? Well, I, to further the question a little bit, it's interesting because what you have here is what some would contend is a contradiction in John's own letter. Because if you go back to the first chapter, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we're a liar. And in verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So some would contend that John is contradicting himself, but I, I don't believe that's the case because of uh, the significance of what John's trying to do. You may remember, I believe it was last week, uh, Ben did a really brief overview of the fact that John is dealing with some errant teaching from a group known as the Gnostics. Gnosticism is the, the heresy that he's addressing. And in Gnosticism, to give it the most simplistic of definitions, Gnostics believed that knowledge was the means to salvation. What ends up happening here is all throughout John's gospel, he's, he's dealing with one erroneous teaching after another, and we may not always uh, pick up on when he's doing that. But for instance, in chapter 1, 
when he's saying, hey, if you don't have sin, you're deceiving yourself. You're, you're, you yourself are a liar. When he's saying things like that, he's combating the errant teaching uh, of, the, of some Gnostics who said, hey, um, knowledge makes people perfect. If you, if you achieve the right level of enlightenment, you're made perfect. And John's combating that by saying, no one's perfect. Everyone sins, and if you say you don't sin, you're deceiving yourself. But then you get to chapter 3, when he, he here in verse 9, is, is, um, uh, when, he's, when he's here saying, I've lost my place in my chapter, oh, there we go, uh, that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. He's combating a different erroneous teaching. Uh, in chapter 3, he's opposing the Gnostic belief that sin doesn't matter. See, the Gnostics said, hey, if it's all about your mind and it's all about your knowledge and all about your enlightenment, then what happens in this body doesn't really matter. This is just uh, flesh, and you can do whatever you want with the body. It doesn't matter. And John's combating that teaching when you get to chapter 3. And he's saying, hey, it, it, does, it does actually matter. It does matter what you do. And you need to be conscious of it because God, God requires you to be righteous as He is righteous. And, and the problem with these positions is that to, to say that, that no one sins or, or to say that knowledge makes you perfect, that's kind of being blind to sin where, and, and denying its existence. Where, but if you're saying, hey, sin doesn't really matter, that your, your flesh doesn't matter, you can do whatever you want, then that's being indifferent towards sin. And uh, John's combating two different belief systems here. And he's not trying to contradict himself. He's trying to present the truth on each matter uh, and combat these errant teachings. So uh, I like the summary one author gave. Uh, John declares the universality of sin in chapter 1 because to deny sin is to be a liar. And then here in chapter 3, he declares the incompatibility of sin in the Christian, and because to commit sin is to be of the devil. And so I, well, the, way I, the way I see it is that John's not really trying to sit here and argue about the impossibility of sin. That's not his, his goal here, particularly in chapter 3. He's trying to point out that, that to continue sinning is, is incongruous with the life of a Christian. It's not that you can't do it, it's that it doesn't fit with the life of a Christian. Now, that's my very um, simplistic view of this. I'm sure these guys are going to, to fill in the gaps now and make it better, right? Well, I don't know what incongruous means, but when we look at 1 John <laughs> chapter 3, what is interesting to me is what he relates sin to. Verse 4, he talks sin is lawlessness. Uh, when we sin, when we commit, when we practice sin, we are living a lawless life. We, we do not abide in the truth, uh, abide in Him. We do not abide in Christ. We are abiding in lawlessness. And someone who is supposed to be abiding in Him and supposed to be in Christ, walking in the light, they don't abide in lawlessness. They abide in the law of Christ. And that's exactly what he's saying. And, and, and we talked about this, I believe, the first week, the difference in committing sin and practicing sin. Uh, 
this is not telling us that you can never, you should never, absolutely never commit a sin, but the realization is that we all commit sin. We all come short. We all fall short of the glory of God. If we say we have not sinned, we are a liar. So we all commit sin, but there's a difference in committing it and practicing it. And those who abide in Christ, abide in Him, do not practice sin. They do not make a practice of it, I believe your translation said. Whoever makes a practice of sin always, uh, uh, also commits lawlessness, or whatever your translation happened to say. So it's very interesting for us to understand that if there's, the, the, there's those who practice lawlessness, practice sin, and there are those who practice righteousness and practice the way Christ practiced his life. Verse 7 tells us, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And then he flips it in verse 8 and says, Whoever practices lawlessness, whoever practices uh, sin, is of the devil. And there is no gray area here. Uh, a lot of times Christians want to believe there's this gray area. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, most of it's black and white with a little bit of red in the gospel right? So when we look at the Bible, we have to understand that, especially in 1 John, there's no gray area. You are either in the light or you are in darkness. You are either in righteousness or you are in the devil, he says. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And it was for this purpose that the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. If, you, if we are to abide in him, we cannot abide in the thing that he came to destroy. He came to destroy lawlessness. He came to destroy sin. And if we abide in sin, if we abide in lawlessness, then we too are the ones that he's going to have to destroy. Because he cannot have fellowship with those things. And it's very interesting what he says in verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. I believe your translation said obvious. Mm -hmm. It's the same way Paul, we're talking on Wednesday nights, talks about the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. These things are evident. They are obvious. They are able to be seen. They're able to be witnessed. And the same is with those who practice lawlessness and those who practice righteousness. It's manifest. It's obvious. It's evident. And if you practice those things, if you practice lawlessness, then you cannot be of God and you do not abide in Him. Yeah, absolutely. And like both of you said, I think it's important to remember the context of why he's saying these things. I mean, John is writing to an audience that is having to deal with a lot of false teachers. And so verse 7 and verse 10, he's saying, this is how you can discern the good guys from the bad guys, those who are sinning from those who are walking in righteousness. In verse 9, it's, no one is born of God would make a practice, who would be committing and making that decision over and over again, living in a life that is practicing sin. Like you said, it's not... No one who's born of God will ever sin. It's who want makes a practice of sin. So I think that's the key kind of explanation of that, like both of you said, is one who is continuing in that. And then in verse 10, and by this, the children of God are obvious. We can see 
I think an important part is in the middle of verse 9, because his seed abides in him. You want to figure out if someone is walking in the light with God or if someone is walking a life of lawlessness, what fruit are they producing in their lives? I think John 15, verses 6 through 8, and then going here, verse 9, would show that to be the case. Let's keep reading. Chapter 3, verses 11 through 19. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, if, if brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. For whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. So there's a lot to unpack in this passage. There's, we, we might have to just finish in verse 19 tonight. If we, if we, if we have to, that's fine. Uh, my question for this section would be, how do we go about fulfilling that statement? Laying down our lives for the brethren. Now we know in the extreme cases where we may have, you know, there's a sacrifice for someone's life, but... In our life today, in Gwinnett County, in the Tri-County area that we're living in, how do, how do we as Christians, day-to-day lives, how do we lay down our lives for the brothers, brothers and sisters? Well, you know, Jesus would say, uh, greater love is no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Uh, you know, it's the same here in 1 John. We ought to be willing to lay down our lives for one another. But John's already realizing that not only are you not willing to lay down your life for your brother, you're not even willing to help him when he's in need. Not only are you supposed to be willing to lay down your physical life for your brothers and sisters in Christ, y'all aren't even serving one another. Y'all aren't even loving one another in word or in truth and in deed. I love what he has to say in verse 18. My little children... Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is John's way of saying, put your money where your mouth is. Don't love in word and in tongue. I love you so much. And then when you see your brother or sister in need, or you see your brother and sister hurting, you shut your heart away from him, the the text would say in verse 17. Shut up his heart from him. How does the love of God abide in the one who shuts his heart away from his brother or sister in Christ? When we see our brothers and sisters in need, when we see our brothers and sisters hurting, then we need to hurt with them. Then we need to fill those needs for them because they are our brother. They are our sister in Christ. And we abide in Him, and if we abide in Him, then we love in deed and in truth. And the question obviously has to be asked, how do you love? 
which type of love do you give others around you? Do you love in word or in tongue? Where you tell someone, I love you so much, I would do anything in the world for you. But when it's time to help them out, I got this to do, uh, I, 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 I got to be somewhere, uh, uh, I got a headache today, uh, I, I, you know, my, the, my, my back's acting up, you know, I, and those, sometimes that really happens. But are you there for the people around you when they need you? If you're not, then you don't abide in him. How can you say, he says, how does the love of God abide in those who shut their heart away from their brothers and sisters in Christ? And so how do we do that today? Well, we are completely and wholly there for one another. No matter what there requires from us. No matter what that ask of us, we are willing and able and wanting and desiring to be there for one another because we love with deed and truth and we abide in Him. Yeah, the, to me it, laying down your life is ultimately uh, just John's way of saying sacrificial action. Uh, whether that take the form of uh, sacrificing monetarily or sacrificing of your time or, or sacrificing of your energy, whatever sacrifice needs to be made, that's what you do out of love. And, and when he speaks, to me that's what it means to love in deed and in truth as opposed to love, loving in word and talk. And, and for me that means, that going back to the parable of the Good Samaritan is the, the source material for me. Because what the Samaritan did in that parable demonstrated actionable love and not just love that is spoken, love that is a sentiment, love that is a, a great catchphrase. It's love that actually did something for somebody else. And so for me, what John's trying to summarize here is that our, our love takes action and his example is an action of someone who needs material, financial assistance. And, and so John is calling us to have that, the, the mindset that there's no sacrifice we're not willing to make out of our love for others. I'm reminded of Paul's uh, comments, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So how do we fulfill this comment in verses 6 We ought to lay down our lives for others. I'm reminded of a wedding I went to back in 2012, 2013. Uh, it, ben, being from Alabama, you'll understand how crazy this is. I had, my best friend uh, had a wedding, planned it on the Saturday of the Alabama and Auburn football game. Well, he just didn't want anybody there. Exactly. It was a tactic. And so to some people, Alabama and Auburn football or just college football, that's their lives. That's what they live for. That's, and for them to go to that wedding, that was them laying down their lives to go to that wedding. But I think about the times in ministry, I think about the times as Christians we're all called to lay down the things that mean our life, mean, that make up our life for us. I think what it means to lay down your life, it means to lay down my preferences. It means to lay down my desires. It means to lay down my, my priorities for my brothers and sisters. Because that's what God expects of me. I don't need to do anything out of selfish reasons. I need to 
count other people as more important than myself. And just as Christ laid down his physical life for me, I'm going to lay down my goals, I'm going to lay down my time, my energy, my passion, whatever it may be, my plans are out of the door if a brother or sister needs me. And that's the expectation on all of us. That's me laying down my life for them. And I love how he wraps up this section. We will know by this, by simply loving each other, not in just word and act, you know, by word and deed, but in, excuse me, in deed and truth, but if we actually love each other, we will know by this that we are of the truth. This whole conversation so far has been centered around abiding in God, being able to discern, walking in the light, having fellowship with Him. Do we truly know Him? If you want to know if you're walking in the truth or if you are of the truth, then how is your love for your brothers and sisters around you? Is it relegated to just speech? Is it relegated to comments on social media? Is it relegated to just prayers, which are great? But are there also physical action sacrifices that you're making for the people in this room, the people that are watching online that were here this morning? How, are, how do you go out of your way on a week-to-week basis for the people that are, that are the household of God? That's an expectation laid down on us. Verses 20 through 24, we'll have to wait till a week after next. Kyle's going to, in a second, that this is going to wrap up our, our thoughts for John chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Uh, we'll, we'll start verses 20 through 24, not next Sunday, but the next. So Kyle's going to quickly explain uh, what next Sunday is going to look like, and then after that, uh, we're going to wrap up tonight, but please stay seated. Actually, we're going to have two Sundays in a row that we're not doing the roundtable in its normal format. Next Sunday, these two guys are going to be going to Bible camp with a bunch of our youth. I know they're all looking forward to that. And with, uh, with their absence, we're going to do a special Ministers of the Roundtable Emeritus Edition. What we've done is we have asked three of uh, the retired preachers among us to join me in a special study next week. Brother Gene Clower, Brother John Iverson Sr., and Brother Mike Gifford are going to uh, join me up here. We're doing a special study on what we're calling church words. Now, you may have heard Ben make mention of that last week uh, when we came across the word propitiation. And what we're going to do next week is tackle as many church words as we can and help to explain some of those big words that you never hear anywhere else but in religious circles. So that will be next Sunday night. We hope you'll join us for that. The following Sunday night will be July 4th, and we're going to, on July 4th, we're going to have a special uh, prayer and singing night. And I hope you'll plan to be a part of that as well, and then we'll return to this format the second Sunday in July. Okay, so that wraps up our study tonight on the the first part of John. But we have something else we're going to do tonight as well. This whole night we've been talking about abiding in God, having a relationship with God. Well, we three are about to get down. We're going we're gonna to move off the, the, whatever this is, not the stage, the, the front. Table. We're going to move off the round table here because there is a young gentleman, Jackson Hatchett, who wants to abide in God tonight. So at this moment, he's, they're going to come forward, and we're going to get to witness him make his decision to be baptized in Christ.